Okay, everyone. Good evening. Um, it's good to see you all again. And um, yeah, so I think um, this is our second workshop, and I think all of you know uh, what we are going to do and uh, why we are doing uh, what we are doing. I actually I prepared this slide because uh, I was expecting to see a lot of people uh, outside our um, chapter leader uh, group. But I don't think it is. This will be relevant. But what I'm going to uh, talk about here is the. Uh, I believe that all of you know that the conference that Sikai sponsor is not just Sky. So uh, we have about the twenty-four other conferences, uh, as you can see here. What I'm going to uh, talk about here is the. Uh, I believe that all of you know that the conference that Sikai sponsor is not just Sky. So uh, we have about uh, 24 other conferences, uh, as you can see here, which is the Sikai sponsored conference. So Sikai sponsored conference is the, uh, not just the in cooperation conference, it is a Sikai actually sponsored this one. So you can see this, you can see Mobile HEI, you can see CSCW. So with this, all these conferences, actually you have more to uh, present and to uh, submit your papers. And usually these conferences, they are very specialized. It is really good that uh, after the summer school, we had uh, a lot of uh, chapters, a lot of people, they started um, uh, doing their own uh, activities in their home country. So basically, that was the idea. Also, uh, we have um, Aussie here. He has been doing a lot of work in Indonesia um, after the, uh, the summer school uh, that we had in Singapore. So that's why we are um, privileged to invite this professor from Australia, who is now like uh, giving us time because I think you've got a lot of things to share with us today. Thank you. Okay, great. Thank you, Eunice, for the kind introduction. Hi, everyone. Okay, so we um, had a lot of fun. I suppose what I'm going to try is go through a lot of that material that we covered over the three days in Singapore last year in November. Um, what I can't share with you is the amazing um, Tito Rig ice cream that I've made last night in, in memory of our experience because obviously a crucial part of actually being there together in person was to eat all the food and enjoy all the um, culinary cultural um, um kind of assets and so that's difficult to do over over um teleconference or a video conference the other thing i need to say is that uh, it was definitely a team effort um you can see here the schedule that we had um over the three days i won't be able to cover all this material i'm, I'm looking at the yellow parts so we're going to start with the first three and i hope that there's going to be enough time for questions and there's a couple of people in the um, in the room. I'm looking at Juliana, for instance, who's had to endure this presentation already twice. So I think um, by now she can probably be a trained trainer and give the presentation herself and maybe answer some of the questions that are coming. 
Um, the other thing to say up front is that there is um, a bunch of resources out there already. Um, so the whole idea of um, doing a tutorial about how to write um, HCI papers and specifically how to write for Kai. Um, this one here is um, very good by uh, Leonard, who's an associate professor at Waterloo in Canada. Um, and it's available at that address writing.kaicourse.com. And it goes through a lot more resources and a lot more details. So if you do have time to um, go through some more um, of this material, I do recommend it. Okay, so I'm starting here with um, something that may not be intuitive when we are talking about writing papers, which is actually to start about um, a much earlier piece, which is how to start your research um, overall, the actual study that you want to write about. And what I think is um, quite apparent when papers are sent for peer review, not just for the CHI conference, but other kinds of interaction design outlets, um, is that if there isn't a clear connection between um, the author's clarity on why they are doing a study and why that they um, are writing the introduction, then um, it's already kind of doomed um, for, for disaster. So I'm starting here because I do want to recommend to have um, quite a bit of thought and, and clarity around what is your contribution to the field and how do you set up your research question. And that should really be something that guides your, your approach, your research, and also the writing of your paper the entire um, way through. Uh, with my own students at, at QUT, um, we usually kind of think of it in a, in a more uh, simple way. And in the next slide, I'm going to extend and expand on this. The more simple view is that there's three um, types of contribution, broadly speaking, which is uh, theoretical contribution, methodological contribution, and empirical contribution. And I think that is quite um, you know, intuitive to understand. So if you are looking at um, theoretical innovation, you um, have read and introduced existing theories, but you're actually um, varying it or changing it or even coming up with your own theory, then your research is making a theoretical contribution. Methodological contribution could be, for instance, where you change um, the way methods are um, employed, where you come up with new methods, new ways of collecting data, new ways of analyzing data, um, different tools that are used in order to um, go about a studies approach. So all of that would fall under a methodological contribution. And the final one, and that usually the majority of papers fall into that category, um, and the majority of studies, I suppose, is an empirical contribution, um, which is where you're actually talking about your findings, your results, your data analysis, and what it means um, for the field and what it means for the world. Now, this is a um, really useful paper that was published in uh, ACM Interactions in uh, 2016, where those different contributions are unpacked a little further, and you see some similarities with my previous slide. So this is by um, Jacob and, and Julie that published this in Interactions in 2016. They came up with seven categories. Um, the empirical one is there at the top. They also distinguish um, and have a second category that is specifically about an artifact that is 
been um, presented in a paper, or for instance, a, a novel system. Um, the method um, we just discussed, the theory we discussed. They also have a um, contribution type that's about data sets that could be um, published about. The sixth one is about survey meta-analysis or systematic literature review. Um, now, one comment to make about that sixth category is that if you use a survey in your study, it doesn't mean necessarily that your um, contribution falls into that sixth category. Um, I think the systematic literature review is the, the best way to explain that particular um, contribution um, category. Um, if you are doing a, um, a normal literature review, you obviously try and establish um, a gap uh, in the field by looking at what people have researched and what is known in the field, and then you establish what is not known, where your study can make a contribution. The uh, idea behind a systematic literature review is that there is a, um, a bit of a structured um, um, search approach um, by documenting, for instance, the different Boolean searches that you do, what databases you select and so forth. And that in its own right becomes a contribution because of its replicability um, by others and the way that it's documented and produces results and they are analyzed not just in qualitative terms in terms of the review of the papers, but also in terms of the coverage in the field of how many people have been publishing about a certain topic. So that's in a way um, why that uh, category is called a survey. So it's more like a, uh, a mapping, if you like, of the field or an appraisal of the field. And then the last one is opinion, essay or argument. Um, that's a bit of a miscellaneous category, I suppose. But I think one very um, easily understood uh, example are keynotes. So I think a keynote speech, if it's actually, and sometimes the ICM does publish um, keynote speeches either as a recorded video or the actual um, written speech um, in the ACM digital library. Uh, the expectation often for a keynote speaker is that they present their own opinion and it's um, actually on purpose designed to be um, not just entertaining but also provocative and um, it's supposed to uh, you know stimulate debate and discussion to um, try and move the field forward and so that doesn't really fall into any of these other categories because it's much more based on someone's argument that they are building or for instance how they interpret the future or what kinds of propositions they are um, putting forward now the reason why it's really um, useful to start with um, a clear view on what your study is about is the risk of being um, misinterpreted so if your um, paper for instance is really about a new method that you want to talk about but the reviewer doesn't get that idea because it's very clear from your abstract of your introduction. Um, and the reviewer might think that this is just an, another normal empirical paper. They would expect uh, a certain um, structure to the paper. They would expect to see maybe data, maybe um, numbers, maybe interview quotes. And then they would be disappointed that none of that is actually there. So you're more likely to get a rejection from um, peer review processes when um, the reviewer is um, unsure about the contribution type. So one of the things to, um, to double check and to be just clear 
um, with yourself is what paper am I writing? What, where does it fall under? Sometimes it's that a study or even a, you know, a PhD project, um, they make multiple contributions. So we have often cases where for our research studies, there's, you know, methodological innovation. We're also looking at new theory. We're also producing empirical insights. And the temptation could be that you're trying to cram everything into the one paper. That's also risky because different reviewers like different things. And so you give them a choice. They will just say, oh, the one reviewer will like the theory. And then the next reviewer will like the method. And then the third reviewer will like your empirical contribution. And then you will get three different opinions. Um, my recommendation is that if you do have three different contributions, you should really be writing three different papers. So uh, the, the rule of thumb is that it's one contribution, um, one paper. To, um, there is some variation in that rule, but um, overall, you, it's a much safer bet uh, if you are sticking to, to the one idea, the one kind of message that you want to bring across um, in the one paper, rather than trying to do everything uh, in the one paper. Now, the other thing that this paper did uh, in interactions from uh, from Jacob and Julie in 2016 is this uh, little graph here. I hope we can still see this over um, the screen share. This is data from 2016, and there might be variations uh, across the different years. Uh, but overall, what I find is interesting is to follow the, um, the blue bar, which is the percentage of different program submissions um, and similarly, the gray one, which is the, the uh, percentage of, of total submissions. So in 2016, they had 2,316 papers submitted total. And you can see the um, first category that was presented in that paper, the empirical um, genre, or the empirical format, I suppose. If broken, um, they've broken that up again into two subcategories. So the first empirical type is studies of system use and then the second one is studies of people and if you add them both up together that obviously represents the bulk of the submissions in kind so most of the submissions are of some sort of empirical nature and if you then also consider the contributions that represent a new artifact or a new uh, design or a new system then you're already quite close, huh? where are we at? So 44 and um, 28, 24, that's 50, 90, 94. Um, so it's quite um, quite a high uh, number of um, um, submissions that fall into those categories. Now that has pros and cons. So you've got to think about this strategically. Um, you could now compare this, for instance, with the orange bar, where you look at acceptance rate. And the acceptance rates are slightly higher for studies of people, slightly lower for um, studies of system use. Um, and they go even um, lower when you do uh, methods contributions or theory contributions. But the other consideration you might want to think about is if you do get your paper accepted, there's far fewer of those. So what would be interesting is to actually compare how many of those are already out there that um, are getting cited? I mean, citation is very difficult to predict because it depends on um, on the um, the publicity surrounding a paper. It depends on what database it goes into. Um, there are so many factors. 
But I think one of the ones that is apparent in this graph is around the kind of competition. So if you can see here that the bulk of the submissions are of an empirical nature and you're working on a specific uh, type, let's say it's um, multi-touch tabletop interfaces, collaboration amongst multiple users, and you're doing studies to try and identify um, new interface um, innovation to enable people to, to use such interfaces. The chances that there are so many others that are doing the same thing um, might be quite high. Whereas, as you can see here, there isn't as many um, theory papers. And some of the um, um, people that specialize in more theoretical papers, they get a lot of citations because sometimes these theory papers, um, they uh, attract a lot of attention. So um, some of the papers that Paul Durish, for instance, is publishing, um, they fall into that category. Obviously, he is a bit of a wizard and, and mastermind when it comes to combining um, different um, disciplinary backgrounds, um, drawing on cultural studies, anthropology, and, and other fields. But um, those are the kinds of papers that um, often get cited quite a, quite a lot. So if you look at, for instance, the most cited papers in, in Paul's portfolio of papers over many, many years, I would argue that it tends to be the theory papers that get more cited um, than a, um, a um, empirical study. Okay. Um, this one here extends um, the, the kind of thought about the, um, the real beginning, the, the, the clarity that you've got to achieve before you even start writing anything. And, and this one also pertains to the introduction. So my expectation as a, as a reviewer or as a reader is that I get quite a clear um, idea from reading the abstract and reading the introduction about the difference your study makes um, in introducing the pain and the painkiller, or in other words, the significance versus the innovation. Um, so as an example, let's assume that the pain we are talking about is, is headaches. Uh, lots of people suffer from headaches or migraines. Um, and the painkiller would be aspirin, uh, medication that you can take in order to um, remedy your headache. Now, if you're doing research on this, there is obviously all the lit literature review um, that you would um, put into your paper in order to cover prior work. But that's already the second section. I'm still with the introduction. So in the introduction, the way to actually um, argue that this is a paper we're reading is to introduce your significance and then you introduce the innovation. And we'll get later on to the abstract where we are um, doing the same thing, just in, in shorter, um, in, in fewer words. Um, so when we talk about headaches, for instance, the way to illustrate how this is a significant study is to, for instance, use statistics about what um, the pain um, constitutes. So it might be that you argue that a lot of people suffer from headaches. Here's some statistics how often this occurs. In um, Australia, um, people that are suffering from headaches are likely to take a sick day. Um, and over the year, this contributes to, you know, um, three million people are not going to work, and that constitutes in turn a lot of um, three billion dollars to the economy annually. 
Okay, so some of these kinds of statistics that you might be able to get from um, government sources, policy documents, sometimes it's um, industry peak bodies that publish this data. That's really useful to put into your introduction because it, it paints the picture of what we are talking about. It's not a good idea to start the introduction and already going really, really deep and delving in um, into, into heavy theory or into um, jumping ahead into a level of detail where you would lose your reader. So think of it as starting very broad. Um, it's even kind of like a newspaper article, but you want to refrain from being too journalistic and too um, flowery in your language. It's still at the end of the day an academic piece. But yeah, so the, the significance of your study is establishing um, what are the consequences of not doing the research. So if we are not doing the research of inventing aspirin, then there is um, loss to the economy. There is a lot of people that are suffering from headaches um, and, and, and the list goes on. Um, that is then distinguished from the innovation piece. So the innovation is really what are you going to do about it um, through your research. Um, so obviously that is um, argued on the basis of the literature review that's to follow after the introduction. So in the um, introduction itself, you only really give a bit of a glimpse of your approach. So you argue um, what kind of research question you're following. It's usually a good idea to have either clearly spelled out research question or alternatively a set of research aims. Uh, you can do the one or the other. So either you word it as a question or you um, you word it as, a, as an aim or a set of objectives. Um, and you, you explain to the reader why those are good questions to ask. Um, and then um, the other thing that is uh, uh, really quite handy for the peer reviewer as well as the reader, um, you finish your introduction with, an, um, with a summary paragraph that gives an overview over um, the rest of the structure of the paper. Um, now, this one here is um, a bit more detailed. There's the reference. I'm happy for you to, well, I, I might send these um, slides to, to Eunice to then distribute to, to you guys. Um, so the reference is usually at the bottom of the slide. You don't have to um, jot this all down or whatever. I'm happy to share these slides with you. And this is one of the ones that you might want to go back to later down the track. Um, this is actually quite handy when you start a new study. Um, because it goes through this kind of set of phases and questions that you want to ask yourself potentially um, in order to make sure that it's um, the right research question to, um, to ask. So the first phase is around situating yourself, identifying and crafting the question in the first place. And then you refine it, evaluate it. Is it the right question? Is it interesting, sound? Is it important? Is it a novel question? And you actually got to do a little bit of work in order to determine this. So for instance, um, only because there is something that you don't know, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's a question or that's a, a piece of knowledge that nobody knows. And in order to establish whether this is something that is unknown to yourself or all of um, academia, that's why we do the literature review. So the question about is it novel um, can only really be answered by um, going out there and um, looking at... Um, research papers. 
Um, one pet peeve I have when I review papers um, and also when I um, look at the way that um, different authors um, side work is if they are lazy. So don't be lazy with your literature review and only go to the ACM Digital Library. Um, a lot of design work, a lot of work in HCI is really um, in conjunction with another field. We're doing a lot of work which is design plus something else, design plus health, design and sustainability, design and um, urban planning. So there's usually something else that we are working with as the domain that uh, we are interested in. Um, and it is, I think, um, not appropriate to only look into the HCI literature to find things that are really outside the HCI field. So if I'm writing a paper that is about design, HCI, and then it's also about health, I should really be going into the health literature and see what's out there. If you don't find anything appropriate, that's another matter, but um, there are so many instances um, where authors have just been super lazy and they've cited um, 50 papers and it's 50 Kai papers as if the Kai conference is just the only thing in the world. Um, so I reject them straight away because this is just very lazy and very ignorant. And I'm encouraging everyone to um, remember why the HCI field was founded in the first place, which is that um, it was supposed to be a coming together of the H and the C, right? So in the early days, they were their own um, ivory towers, their own silos. We had the um, people that were doing techie stuff, engineering, software engineering, um, computer science on the one hand, and we had the people that were doing psychology and uh, behavioral sciences, and they were doing human factors. And the coming together of HCI, HCI was, was really quite a breakthrough in terms of embracing interdisciplinary research. The problem that we've, um, we are facing is how we've actually lost a lot of that by becoming our own silo, our own cult, our own fraternity, um, our own religion. And um, that's something that I'm, I'm strongly advocating um, against and a lot of other um, professors at HCI as well. So I think this part there about um, whether your your research is novel and the kind of way you go about establishing your your literature review um, is is really really quite um, crucial um, for the way the paper gets presented. The flip side to this is um, that there is so many other opportunities to publish. So a lot of the time, people only think of their um, uh, of the Kai conference as the only outlet. And if they get rejected uh, from Kai, they just go to to this or Oskai or Nordic Kai or whatever Kai, as long as it's Kai in the name. Um, think about journals, think about other disciplines, think about the domain that you're working with. Um, so even in Singapore, when we met there in November last year, and we'll have a look at some of the papers, uh, the, the titles in a second, there were so many great studies that were super interesting and very uh, novel and original, and they're all going to go into Kai. And I just thought it's such a waste. Um, there's so many great studies that we are doing, and they should actually also be going and informing the work of other fields. Um, we are far too navel-gazing and far too closed up 
Um, if you're doing a study in health, published in health journals, if you're doing something in psychology, go into psychology journals. If you're doing something with automotive user interfaces, published into transport journals. Um, the reason why this is problematic for our community is that nobody outside HCI even knows what, what HCI is. Um, you can test this, ask, you know, whether someone knows what HCI stands for. And um, if they don't, it's because we've created a cult. All right, I should probably um, stop ranting about uh, the problems of the Kai community since uh, Eunice will uh, be um, angry with me. But um, I hope that um, some of this will, will resonate with you. Now, this is a bit more uplifting. Um, which is a paper by um, Susan Böttgen, and she's done this in action 2016 as well with Casper, Antti, and, and Stuart Reeves. Um, and the paper is really um, designed for uh, early career researchers in, in HCI, and it's called Nine Questions for HCI Researchers in the Making. The reason why I put this up here is because, again, it's really useful to be going through these questions and asking yourself um, these these types of questions in order to really establish more, more confidence in the way that you present your work. Um, and the flip side, again, is that those that um, don't really have that confidence, it comes kind of across in between the lines when you write your, your paper. We won't go through all these questions right now, but you can see that some of them um, have direct um, kind of applicability to your to your writing task, whereas others are much more broader and, and more in, indirectly, implicitly um, related to that. Um, number five, for instance, is your approach right for your research topic? Um, I I might just kind of stop on uh, or pause on, on number five for a little bit because I think there's some um, wisdom in that as well regards to writing papers, getting them through peer review. Um, a lot of people, or, or a lot of submissions that I see that are problematic, um, they're problematic because they are too, um, they're often too set in their ways with regards to an approach that is expected in their department or that's expected in their team. Um, so the example I have is where a Kai paper is presenting a study and the actual um, evaluation part is trying to follow a, a, a quantitative approach, but the numbers are really low. Um, so they are, they've actually only done um, or engaged um, eight study participants, but the approach makes it look like it's, it's a quantitative study. So there's bar charts, there's supposed to be statistical analysis. They're using all the terminology from from a quantitative analysis, so n equals eight, and the median is this, and the average age of my participants is that. Um, that's not a good idea. It's not appropriate, really, to do a quantitative analysis with such low numbers. What you really want to do is argue um, why a quantitative approach is, is entirely appropriate. Um, and there's uh, some resources I can give you on that topic, for instance. Um, and vice versa, you might actually have a study where a quantitative approach would be much more appropriate and a qualitative one isn't, isn't really going, um, uh, isn't really serving you well. So um, I think number five is quite a, a useful question to ask when it comes to 
um, getting through peer review and some of the others as well. So I do recommend having a look at that article by um, Suzanne and Petunia. By the way, talking about questions, if you guys um, have questions, do just um, unmute yourself and, and chime in. Um, that might also give me an indication whether you're still connected. You're still there? You can also post questions in the chat. So I've arranged my window so finally I can actually um, I can see the chat window. Uh, one of the should I ask the question right here or should I write? Yeah, you can. Yeah, yeah, do. You can just. This is very small community. That's fine. Um, so, is there any distinction between design community and SCI or as a field? Uh, so, SCI comes. Design is one of the sub field in SCI. Or mostly, what I've seen people designers publishing separate conferences. They have a different outlook how they write the papers compared to SCI researchers. Uh, what's your opinion in SCI and design? Um, I think um, in terms of the subcommittees and the CHI conference, there are some that are more, um, um, I suppose, compatible with the designerly end of the spectrum rather than the technical end of the spectrum. And similarly, Yunus uh, mentioned that um, ACM has, what was it, or the CHI, how many conferences do we have? 24? 24, that's right. Yeah, so they all vary slightly, not just in terms of their focus, but also whether they are more, um, I suppose, attractive and appealing to a designerly audience versus an engineering audience. So I would say that there is a bit of the spectrum across the technical field versus a more designerly field. Um, the conference I mentioned, Designing Interactive Systems, for instance, um, tends to position itself much more towards a design audience. There are sometimes there's technical papers as well, but the technical papers end up being much more submitted to a conference like Ubicomp. Um, what else? Um, there are also a whole bunch of conferences organized by the IEEE. Um, so there's definitely a bit of a difference. Um, Kai seems to be um, a big monster that eats them all. So it's grown and grown and grown and grown and grown and mushroomed and mushroomed and gotten bigger and bigger. And now anything gets submitted to Kai. So, um, yeah, you can you can submit um, whether it's technical or engineering or designerly. There's um, a whole bunch of committees and um, different categories, and the list actually grows as well. Um, what I think though is useful is to to do consider that design is much larger because. Um, design isn't just uh, always about interaction design. Like in my school, for instance, we have fashion, um, architecture, industrial design, um, landscape design, interior design. There's all these other, um, you know, um, facets of design that is more than just interaction design. And then it gets splintered even further into um, experience design, service design, transition design, um, sustainable design. The list goes on. Um, so there is a bit of an overlap. It's kind of like a Venn diagram. There is a nexus between um, these different um, fields, but it's definitely useful to have a look into other outlets and other journals, for instance, and what gets published. Um, especially if you go into smaller sub-communities, um, like for instance, the participatory design community has been very established um, sub-community and 
Um, they also have their own conference called PDC, um, which will actually happen um, next week. Um, PDC is, yeah. well, going to be distributed across the world and it's going to be online, but it was intended to be in uh, Colombia. Great, thank you. Now, um, my favorite slide, the broccoli. I can already see Juliana rolling her eyes. Is that right? Is Juliana still there? Yes, she is. <laughs> she is giving me the thumbs up. <laughs> okay, um, let's do the test. So Juliana already knows the answer and Eunice as well. So any of the others, I think um, Ozzy is there as well, isn't he? Like, yeah, there's a whole bunch of people that already know about um, all these material, but for the fun of it. So um, why is there a broccoli on this slide? Anyone? Because you want to live healthy. <laughs> because it's multi-layered. That's not the answer. Sorry, what was that? Because it's multi-layered. Yeah, yeah, it's multi-layered. We're getting there, but there's something else about it. Like a, an onion is multi-layered as well, but I didn't use an onion. I went for the broccoli. Um, by the end, we reach to the discussion part of the research paper. Uh, it open up, open ups to a lot more possibility, a lot, lot more questions and research to do from the discussion part. So, uh, so I'm considering that the top part of the broccoli is the discussion, and the introduction is a starting point of the abstract is a starting point, the down part. Uh, no, not quite. Um, What's specific about the broccoli's um, form factor? It's the, the broccoli's shape. Yeah, Janet is saying because of its shape. Janet, what's the what, what's about the shape of the broccoli that's special? Is Janet still there? Janet, are you still there? there? Janet, please switch on your mic. <laughs> oh, she's responding in the um, uh, oh, in the chat. She says it's like a tree. Um, yeah, hello. kind of. Hello? So, microphone. Oh, here on. we go. Yes. Hello. Yes, yeah, we can so hear it's you. It's kind of like a tree, but it's probably got. I don't know what kind of roots it has. Maybe it's got big roots as well. Um, yeah, it does hello? look like a tree. Um, a tree, in a way, could be a nice example as well. The specific um, attribute that I'm looking for is um, um, self-similarity. Self-similarity? Yeah, what happens with broccoli, if you, if you pick up a piece, it looks again like broccoli. And if you pick it, if you pick it again and, and break it apart, it again looks like a broccoli. So it's like a fractal. Wow. And the reason why that is um, really relevant here is because this structure that you see there on the left um, is also um, self-resembling. In the sense that the structure of um, an abstract, and we'll get to that on the, one of the next slides, resembles uh, 
the uh, the paper. And then once you go into any of the sections, they also resemble again that structure of um, what we call the hourglass model. So this this uh, graphic here um, is usually referred to as the hourglass model because it goes from from this very broad shape in the beginning, the introduction, to something very detailed, very specific, and then towards the end, it's kind of like zooming out again. You get broad and um, you connect back to the original introduction and the the points that you've made there. Now, if you go beyond just a single paper and you have, for instance, a, a PhD thesis, then you have multiple broccoli pieces because each chapter is organized in that way, but the whole thesis is organized like a broccoli too because you get the introduction, you get literary, methodology, results, discussion. But each one could be a paper. Each one could have been published. In fact, a lot of our students um, do what we call a thesis by published papers, where the chapters become papers. Um, so yeah, it's about the, um, the self-similarity um, and the way that um, that is a theme throughout um, making sense and, and writing these different um, sections. The other thing to um, perhaps mention here is that um, what you want to ensure is that anything that you're introducing in the top part gets used and is, is useful and necessary for the reader to make sense of, of your study and of your paper. So um, I, I should probably go and, and verify that it is by Ernst Hemingway. I'm pretty sure it was Ernst Hemingway, the actual um, fiction writer, who introduced this notion that everything that, that you need to introduce into your, your novel, your writing, your narrative, um, it's getting um, seeded and harvested, or uh, you plant something and then you plant it again. Um, and this idea of, of seed and harvest um, also, for instance, applies to your literature review um, or the way that you introduce um, theory. I'll give you an example. Um, what is a, a problem for me in peer review is when a literature review turns into a lecture. As a, as a reader, I don't want to be lectured at. That's what you do with your students when you do undergrad lectures and you teach them. Um, that's not what we do in a, in a paper. So in the literature review, um, if you need to introduce a theory because the theory gets used later on the track in order to analyze your results, you're using a specific theoretical framework because it's really useful to, to make sense of your findings, then you introduce that theory and maybe you still say in a side uh, sentence, in, a, in another sentence, why you didn't use other theories. But you don't want to introduce 10 theories or 20 and then only one of them gets gets used. And it happens a lot where people want to show off how much they know. They know everything. They know 20 theories. And so I have to read through a literature review with 20 theories and I get frustrated. Uh, first of all, I know them all already. And second of all, they don't reappear in the paper at all. So the Ernst Hemingway rule is that if you if you plant um, a gun in your novel, then there needs to be someone that shoots the gun. Okay, you can't have someone put the gun in there and then the gun doesn't get used. Okay, in, in a crime novel, and the paper works the same way. Um, so once you put something in there, it needs to be used. Um, you can't just introduce a whole bunch of things and then they're just there because you want to show off how much you know. 
Now, this part is apparently really um, um, appealing to people, which is this whole discussion about titles. Um, this paper, I'll just leave there as a reference, and you can refer to it later, which is um, something that um, Jacob uh, uh, Warbrook has written about. Um, catchy titles are good, but avoid being cute. So it's kind of like indicating that the title actually of a paper is important, and um, you want to uh, find something that stands out, that doesn't sound too boring. Um, but you also don't want to be so cute that eventually it loses its um, utility, its pragmatic uh, role, which is that it needs to be a mini summary of what your paper is about. So if you think back to the broccoli, once you break the broccoli apart to the smallest item, that's really the title. It's like the smallest item that catches um, and summarizes what the, um, the paper is all about. Um, this is some things for 21. We're going to skip those. That's a paper we discussed in, in Singapore. This was a paper we had at, um, Kai 2017. I'm going to go forward into the, the titles. These were some of our titles. Um, I'm actually going to use this slide here, which is some of the titles from, um, our workshop in Singapore. Um, and so the first one is the um original title that um the participant um uh, proposed for their draft paper and then we workshopped and came up with a refinement so the title underneath in bold is the title that we came up with so the first one um was really a great study that i loved and the title was um role model and role was spelled in this kind of weird way um the evolution from service robots to service for robots um and then we actually looked at the abstract and um what was the guy's name you know, do you remember um it was that german guy no uh what was his name again i can't remember i don't remember myself too yeah sorry that's all right um but we did have a chat with him and he kind of explained what these guys were doing and he explained that this was one of the first studies um to their knowledge, actually to my knowledge as well, that is looking at what happens. Oh yeah, there we go. Josh says it's, it was Toby. So Toby explained that the study was all about um, figuring out what happens when um, humans, when people are being supervised by robots. So your boss is a robot. Now, if you look at that first title, the evolution from service robots to service for robots, would, would you get this idea that that's what the study is about? Are you guys still there? I'm just checking whether I'm the only one on yeah, the radio. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, yes. yeah, 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 okay. <laughs> okay. Um, so I think we, we all agreed that um, that wasn't a good um, title because it didn't really convey that they were sitting on a, on a treasure chest, like something really exciting and cool. And so what we turned this into, and maybe it's a bit um, tongue in cheek, um was all hail the overlords human acceptance of robots in leadership roles so i think um it does have the kind of catchiness of the uh, the all hail the overlords so it would definitely stand out 
But you do have a quite a succinct description that this is a study that is looking at what happens when robots are leaders, bosses, supervisors, they're in leadership roles, and what's the response from humans, so the human acceptance of such a situation. Um, let's do maybe a couple more. Um, the second one, acceptance, readiness, and bureaucracy and design, reimagining UX and tuberculosis treatment. So we looked at that one. Again, we looked at the abstract, what the paper, the study was actually about. And we turned that into tuberculosis treatment between home and hospital, negotiating designs for better adherence. Um, so I think the original title was already pretty good. It had um, quite a bit of detail. Um, but we... Um, we felt that um, what was the element that we wanted to put in there? I think it was um, really the point um, that in that study, um, they took the treatment into the home. And I think that didn't really come through in the original title. So the main point that I felt was really interesting about the study is that a um, tuberculosis treatment seems to be something that is actually quite involved. You would not necessarily think as a lay person that you could do this at home and so um, the fact that they actually took this to the whole context the domestic setting the household um, stood out for me so i think a takeaway really from this exercise is that it's really useful to explain your study to people outside and ask them what they feel is interesting and sometimes it's even this kind of um uh quasi you know journalism interview if you were uh, being interviewed by a journalist what would the heading look uh, look like in a newspaper article what what's interesting and novel from their point of view so it's a good idea to just go and and talk to people from outside your field your outside the team and um, get some feedback on what they believe um is novel about your your study um, we had the Sandman in the cloud. Um, are you okay? I think that was, um, Ozzy, that was yours, wasn't it? Is Ozzy still there? I'm putting people on the spot to see if they're still awake. Ozzy, which title was yours? Was that yours? Hello? Are you okay with the RC style? Hello? Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, he says, yeah, are you okay? It's mine. Okay. Um, so I'll put you there on the spot. The first one was listen to my worries, counseling, counseling feedbacks um, to online counseling, mobile app uh, prototype for depression, which was already quite a mouthful. Um, and so we turned this into Are You Okay? Who are you? Balancing identity and anonymity requirements and online counseling. Um, so the are you okay, I think is, uh, is a bit of an international kind of um, phrase for um, mental health awareness. And um, the response then of who are you um, is actually indicating what the paper is about, even in just that little bit, because um, it's kind of, indicating that it's not okay for just anyone to ask me something very intimate, but something very private. Um, and so, especially in this um, aspect of online counseling, um, you, in a way, want to establish a level of trustworthiness and intimacy, but at the same time, you want to afford the uh, person who is receiving the counseling anonymity. 
And so what was really interesting about Project Study there is this, um, um, I suppose, this fine balancing act that you need to um, negotiate between identity and anonymity. Um, so you can see from some of these examples that um, if, if your title is um, not as well thought through, um, it can just um, give the entire paper a, um, a bad face because the title is something that appears in all the lists when we go through peer review and um, reviewers are assigned. The title is what appears in spreadsheets, what appears in directories and search databases, um, etc. So do spend um, some time trying to finesse um, your, your title and see if you can if you can improve it. I won't go through all of those, but um, you get the idea uh, of how there is um, a lot of thought that kind of went into workshopping some of those. Um, checking if there's any questions in our chat. Uh, so far, uh, no question yet, but it's, yeah, well, we just like to open our mic and uh, if you guys have a question, don't be afraid. Marcus is very kind and he will, accept all, <laughs> he will answer the question. So yeah, just feel free to ask. If, if you don't have mic, then just uh, uh, write something on the chat form. Yeah, it's much more anyway. I'm just going to go through the abstract and I think there's a couple more slides and then I'm happy to just open it up anyway for, for Q&A if that's okay. May I ask a question, Anis? Yes, yeah, sure. sure. Go for it. I just wanted to know about the Lent, Marcus. Thank you very much for all these uh, best practices you, you're sharing. Do, do you have any idea of, of the best Lent? Because sometimes the, the more we want to be precise, the more we want to put words inside, and then it can mix things up. Could you just share some uh, insights about the Lent of the title? Thank you. Oh, you mean the length just of the title? Um, I would keep it... Um, the previous slide well um, i'm going to go back to this. oh i haven't done a proper count but um you would see that um they are probably uh yeah they would usually be less than 25 words um i wouldn't go any longer than what you see here on the screen it would be unusual to go much longer i think the longest one we have here is um from the righteous um, path human refinement of algorithmic semantic segmentation of urban sidewalks and aerial imagery um and i i felt it should really be shorter than that but it was a very specific study that had a lot of a, a very specific focus so that was a little bit hard to really convey what they were doing the on the other end though if it's too simple and sometimes people are wanting to be very clever and they do something really short um, that can backfire because if you go back to that first title um and if the title would be just all hail the overlords and nothing else you wouldn't really know what it's all about and so um that's not a good idea Similarly, if the title is too broad, um, we've had a title submitted to Kai this year, um, 
well, I can't tell you exactly what the title was, but it was, so my field of research is um, uh, urban informatics and smart cities. And let's assume that the paper was just called smart cities. Now that's the title maybe for a book. And even for a book, it wouldn't be a good title because by now there's already so many books written about smart cities that if my book is written smart cities, no one really knows what's my contribution now to the field. There's already 200 books about that topic. Um, so I think your, the answer to your question is that um, you don't want to be too short where um, you leave the reader guessing. Um, that's not really the point for uh, the, the purpose of an academic, uh, the, the title of an academic paper. But you also don't want to go longer than any of the ones that you see on the screen. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we could also look at the titles as if we are um, ourselves while we are reading the titles for the first time. So does this, as you correctly mentioned that the title itself should give us some hint what this paper is talking all about. So we should think from that perspective, once we have written a title, also go back and think, if I was the first person to read this title, does it make sense to me? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think you somewhere in the chat said that it's kind of like doing, you know, UX on your own paper or your own title. So it's kind of like you think of it as a design outcome and you do a, a user test. So if you give someone, um, you know, just the title to read, like I'm just doing here with these studies, um, are you giving um, people enough of an impression of what your study is? So you can ask them questions and say, this is the title of a paper. What do you think this paper is about? And then you know, if, if they if they give you answers that actually indicate that, you know, that's what your study is about, you're probably on the right track. If they give you answers where this is completely something different, then that's that's probably that, you know, indication that you might want to fiddle with it. Okay. The longest research paper, the nuclear, oh, I'm not going to read that out. I can't even spell that. <laughs> um, Eunice, you can read that. Oh. This all this uh, title? <laughs> it's probably like a chemistry paper, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, I would just find I find it. Uh, is this just for fun? It's just crazy. I don't know what it is. Like. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a question from um, Yuliani. Is that how I say your name? Yes. So, can we put the method we use in the title, and on can we use the subtitle if our title is too long? Um, so I'm going to ask, uh, ask the first one about the method. Um, I think the method is only really part of the title if it makes, if it's, if it's a crucial difference that it makes. Um, so what would be a good example? Um, like what I mentioned earlier, it was, um, about the different categories of contributions and there is a specific category for systematic literature reviews, um, I uh, I note that a lot of the papers that are systematic literature reviews and they use that as the method of what their contribution is, they actually indicate that in the title. So it's very common that systematic literature uh, review papers, they say so in their title. So for instance, they would have a topic, um, blockchain in the uh, medical domain, colon a systematic literature review so uh, in in that case for instance they they do that um and it's partly because they want to indicate 
that is an empirical piece where um, blockchain was actually implemented in that kind of way, but it was more a review of the field, a, a systematic literature review. It can also be done in other um, papers. Let me just see in here in our, um, the, the second last one, I think. So human refinement of algorithmic semantic segmentation of urban sidewalks in aerial imagery um, is actually alluding to that method because that paper is a methods paper because the method is really, or the, the, the novelty, the contribution to knowledge um, that, that paper makes is um, not so much about um, producing any insights about what actually happens in that aerial imagery material that they are using. It's about how humans are participating and working together with the algorithmic approach in um, segmenting um, um, footpaths and street furniture and things that are visible in aerial imagery, like satellite imagery. And so that's that's a method paper um, right there. And in a way, the method is indicated in the title. So I think especially if you're doing a methods paper, you want to have the methods um, appear in your title or indicate that this is a methods paper. Um, about the subtitles, um, I would suggest that um, these, these kind of um, types that have a colon, I think most of them that we've um, built here, they have this idea of you know, there's one part and then there's another part and there's a colon in between. Um, it doesn't always have to be that way, but um, a lot of the titles that I come up with, um, I think the previous slide had some of those, um, they, they often do this. So the last one there, people content location, sweet spotting urban screens for situated engagement. Um, it wouldn't really make sense just on its own. So if it was just people content location, that doesn't make sense. Um, sweet spotting urban screens for situated engagement um, doesn't really make sense either because the, the idea of sweet spotting or finding the Goldilocks position, it means it needs to be something in between, you know, like how, how Earth is, is just right between the sun and uh, Jupiter in this kind of perfect spot. Um, and so it's not really a the subtitle is more something optional and a lot of these titles the other the second part to it it's not optional it actually needs to come together um so i i wouldn't recommend to come up with an idea of a subtitle the other reason why is that most um databases don't really have a field for it so if you go into reference management software like endnote or paper pile or mendeley or any of those, you will see it's only title, right? So if you reference papers in ACM style, in, in APA style, um, it needs to be the title. So it doesn't distinguish between title and subtitle. Uh, well, it's actually, it's um, it's an article written by, um, by Jacob Nielsen, uh, the guru of the usability uh, testing. So- Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I'll just like I'll see just share the link. Okay, so I give yeah, you patients to bad design. Yeah. Um, well, the, the other thing you got to consider is in terms of how bold you are with your title, um, is I suppose you're standing in the field as well as the, the power or the caliber of your study. Um, like another really, um, uh, provocative title that 
was published as a book by Mike Montero is Ruined by Design. Now, it's not a Kai paper, but it's a, it's a whole book. It actually is based on an article he's written in, um, in, uh, on medium.com a couple of years ago. Um, but he obviously has uh, a lot of standing in the design community, um, and he's written a, a full book-length treatment making his case. Um, now, that warrants a title of that caliber that is very punchy, very short, um, but at the same time, it, uh, it kind of conveys what the book is about. So he talks about how we are all complicit in ruining the world and bringing about a planetary ecocide and all these design products that we are constantly churning out, is, they're all killing the planet. And he's right, right? So it, it actually has received a lot of very good reception. Now, what you just got to consider when it comes to the title is how much of an argument can you build with just one study? So I think you just got to be reasonable and um, I suppose um, sensible with regards to how much um, you can claim. Um, you can be inquisitive and you can be um, creating curi uh, curiosity. So, for instance, on this slide that I'm showing here, um, the paper that was a bit unusual maybe is the one in the middle that uh, Christine Satchel and I um, published, which was Welcome to the Jungle, HCI After Dark. <laughs> and it doesn't really tell you what we found. That's because the paper didn't actually find anything. It was actually just the opening of a new chapter in our program of research, a new beginning, um, which is uh, a funding that Christina received to start looking at how would you go about HCI at nighttime in, in darkness, uh, applications for nighttime use, um, etc. So that paper was a bit of, a, if you think back to the different categories that I showed you, it's a bit of a argument, opinion, essay. Okay, we do have examples of what we are talking about, but it's definitely not an empirical piece. It's much more a thought-provoking piece, a theoretical piece. And so from that point of view, the title serves quite well because a lot of people still pick it up because it's kind of, you know, in, uh, intriguing to have this welcome to the jungle. Why is it a jungle? Um, at the same time, you get the idea of what it's going to be about. HCI after dark, HCI at nighttime. Um, oh, this is a QT link. Where does this go to? Uh, it, it goes to your paper, actually. It's downloadable. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all downloadable. Um, I mean, they're also downloadable from, from the ACM digital library. Um, okay, I might just quickly go through the last remaining slides, and then we can finish up use the remaining time. Um, so this is about the abstract which again is a crucial part of your paper because when it comes to the um, assignment of peer reviewers, the assignment of subcommittees, um, as well as once your paper gets accepted, for it to actually be read, uh, it needs to be found. And so both the title, the keywords, but specifically the abstract, they are very crucial in ensuring the discoverability of your paper. Um, you want to make sure that, you know, if all this hard work went into your paper and you actually gotten through peer review and you've been accepted, um, it's really a you know, bad outcome if your paper doesn't get picked up, no one finds it. Um, and the abstract plays a crucial role in this. And this is a formula that's from uh, 
Lisa Anthony. Um, again, the link is there at the bottom. She's come up with this, um, what a lot of people refer to as an abstract formula. Um, now there's broccoli again that everyone loves by now and you now understand why. Um, because when you follow these um, five um, parts that, that Lisa is suggesting here, it is actually a mini representation of the hourglass model um, we looked at before. So you start with what's the problem, one sentence, then what's your solution? Now you would remember that's the pain and the painkiller, the significance and then the, um, the innovation. So that's that kind of crucial pair that you really have to have clarity on in your, in your head in order to convey it in your abstract and in the um, introduction. Then the, the meat patty in the middle, um, one to three sentences about what did we do specifically, what's the specific approach. And then you already zoom out again. So you're already at the bottom of the hourglass where you go, about what, your, what are your top findings, one to two findings or takeaways that you want to convey. There's a lot of abstracts I read that just stop after number three. They just do one, two, and three, and they're missing four and five. So make sure when you write your abstract, you have items four and five in there. They're really uh, important, especially the last one. Um, you've got to have a think about what's your, um, not just what the findings are specifically, but what do the findings mean for the field, okay? So that's the kind of uh, difference between analysis and synthesis. When you analyze, you go deep, you go into detail, you make sense of things. When you synthesize, you do the opposite. You go back up again, you go broad, you um, tell the reader um, how your study um, uh, connects to the field and what it means um, for, for the field. And then you can also allude to you know, um, future research. This is an example from one of her papers um, published at CHI 2013. And you see from the different colors of how this is organized, like the broccoli. So you go um, from the problem statement to the solution statement, from the pain to the painkiller. And then you explain what actually happened in the study. Um, you have a one sentence summary about the findings. And then you tell the reader, what do the findings mean for the field? Why is this worth um, reading about? Why is this worth um, publishing? Um, now there's a question from uh, Dr. Sari. What's, uh, it's the same with convergence versus divergence in design. Um, it's a little bit um, different. The idea of, of convergence comes more, well, the way I'm familiar with it, um, from functionality um, design. So for instance, uh, a period when a lot of um, devices converged into, uh, in terms of functionality. So previously we had a separate device to keep track of um, our um, appointments and we would have a, a Rolodex for addresses and we would have another device to um, help track um, photos, they would go into photo albums and so forth. Now everything has converged and everything is in my phone. So the phone is my Rolodex, the phone is my diary, the phone is my um, calendar and it's my address book and it's my phone obviously to make phone calls. Um, so that's the idea of convergence. Um, divergence is where you go back to having very specific um, design artifacts for different features.
So I think um, analysis and synthesis also has this kind of, um, you know, uh, complementary movement, but um, it's slightly different. You're not trying to um, converge in the sense of just unifying. Um, it's more about the difference between um, uh, depth and breadth. So the, the idea of analysis is to go deep, whereas the idea of synthesis is to connect back with the breadth of your field with um, broader thoughts. So for instance, in part of the synthesis, you might talk about how your findings have policy, um, might inform policy recommendations or industry practice or um, even practice in academia itself. Does that make sense? Dr. Sari? Yes, it makes sense, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> okay and finally um language um there's just a couple of dot points and some comments the first one around jargon um jargon is a term that's used to indicate that there's a lot of technical knowledge um, that people don't understand and the thing about jargon is that it's relative so if i'm a um, specialist in um if I'm a specialist in semantic segmentation, whatever that is, um, then I might think that, you know, this is completely fine. I have, you know, no problems with um, human post-editing and assessment for image segmentation. Um, but you just got to keep in mind that for some people, you have no idea what this is about. So um, the more accessible your title, your abstract and your paper is, the more likely it gets picked up. And part of that is um, an understanding that the actual challenge of academic writing is not to express simple things in a complex manner. The, the art and challenge of academic writing is to express complex things in a simple manner. And I think especially early career researchers and especially PhD students, um, a lot of the students that I've been supervising in the beginning sometimes, and it's just natural, it can be very intimidating. It's intimidating to be at university, you're dealing with all these professors, um, and they're asking you about your theoretical framework, and you've got an answer, and you have no idea. And so it, it can be very intimidating, and you want to, you know, obviously um, show that you're confident. Um, and then you start using all this... Um, academically sounding language now that can be a fallacy because people will see right through this so don't make yourself sound academic just because you are trying to impress it's much better to to try and express things in a in a simple manner in clear language short sentences that don't go over more than two lines um and uh, also Rewrite, reread, rewrite, reread multiple times. Go over it a, a lot. Um, a lot of people, and again, just natural, they use the writing process to help them think, and I do that as well. In fact, I'm I'm writing a paper. I was just writing a paper just before uh, we had our meeting, and I kind of you know start writing something, and then I think, oh, I need to actually introduce something first. Um, and so, if you're in the in the midst of it, in the zone sometimes your sentences become very complex and you got to do what you do with a hard drive you got to defragment 
defragmentation. It's like, okay, here's a little bit, and I just put it in there, but actually it should really go much earlier because the reader needs to know that first, and then I can talk about this next thing. Um, so you, usually it's a good idea to go over it a second time at least um, and do what I would call uh, defragmentation from the old days when before we had solid-state hard drives. Signposting um, is um, very simple to do. It's actually just telling um, the reader um, what happens next. And um, that sounds like a very trivial thing, but if you don't have this, um, it makes the reader um, very uncomfortable because they don't really know what's happening. Like, where are we going? It's like having a, um, a brown paper bag over your head and someone is taking you by the hand. You don't really know where you're going. So signposting means, as I said earlier, at the end of the introduction, there should be a paragraph where you outline what the structure is of your paper. Um, now we're going to be reviewing prior works where we established that the gap in the field is X, Y, and Z. Um, we're then going to introduce our uh, studies methodology, which is using X, Y, and Z uh, methods. Um, this is followed by us presenting our, um, our study and our findings. We will then discuss them, da, 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 right? So this is the kind of thing. You continue the signposting inside the broccoli. So let's say um, the, um, um, the literature review, um, you're doing a study on um, uh, HCI that is applied to um, self-driving cars and um, the specific question pertains to attention behind the steering wheel. So there are some questions about um, people's alertness levels and attention levels. So there is um, a literature review in your paper and you um, say that, you know, we are reviewing prior works relevant to our study. Um, our study pertains to three domains, um, the methods of interaction design, the domain of um, uh, autonomous vehicles, and the specific interest we have in alertness, which is pertaining to psychology. And you go through them step by step. So you actually have um, perhaps three subsections. And before you delve in, you actually tell the reader that that's what you're going to do. We're going to be reviewing three parts. Number one, blah. Number two, blah. Number three, blah. And then you, you go about it. Um, and if you do this regularly, the signposting, it just helps create a flow and it feels much more comfortable um, reading the paper. It's like um, signing, right? You know, that's why the name suggests, like the signing you find on campus. Imagine you, remember, uh, you remove all the signs on campus um, and you try and, you know, let people loose to try and orient themselves. They're just like, oh, the big building over there, um, right? So it's like introducing Wi-Fi in your paper. Um, abbreviations, um, to spell them out before you introduce them, that's one thing. The other thing about abbreviations is when you have to anonymize um, your, uh, your study participants or you have to anonymize other parts of your paper because you're trying to ensure blind peer review. Um, I remember a paper not too long ago that was anonymized to the extent that uh, it was just impossible to read. Everything was anonymized. The university, the authors, the participants, the location, the cities, so everything just read like um, participant X from X in project X um, from X. So it was like reading 
WikiLeaks, where everything was deducted by the New York Times. And um, um, when you get to that level, it's just very, you know, just put yourself in the shoes and, and have some empathy with your with your reviewers um, and just imagine what it's like to read um, that kind of thing. I already mentioned length of sentences. Um, uh, try and, and do a self-detection for what I call run-on um, sentences. So run-on sentences are the ones that run on for more than two or three lines and uh, flag them and um, break them down. There's tools as well online um, that can help you find them. So there's readability scores, there's Grammarly, um, there's a whole bunch of tools that uh, can be helpful. Uh, being consistent with your tenses. Um, the simple rule of thumb is that your study should be complete, which means that everything in your study is in past tense. When you describe your study, you talk about your study in past tense. Any of the results that pertain to what has an effect on the present would be a um, present perfect. And then um, when you talk about um, your literature review, your peer review, I tend to talk about other people's work in the present tense. So if I would say, you know, um, Sari 2018 says, um, so I use the present tense consistently in my um, literature review. So those would be the, the three tenses that you want to um, have in your paper, but you want to be consistent in the way that um, that you use them. I've got a bunch of pet peeves here that I'm quickly going to go through. Um, I hate double spacing. It's the first thing that I look for when I review my students' work. Um, avoid double spacing. I hate it. Um, I had, uh, you know, education typography. It hurts my eyes. Um, then uh, contractions, um, you want to spell out. Um, so you don't have don't, we are, doesn't, I can't. You spell out do not, we are. Um, I'm also picking up um, filler words. Um, and they uh, are used a lot. There's um, these ones, very important, importantly, interesting, interestingly. Um, one of the papers, I think it was only last week, um, because I did this uh, similar um, session for Juliana and then the next day I reviewed a paper not by Juliana it was not related but I was just talking about the fact that I have these pet peeves and the next paper the next day that I reviewed it had important mentions um, I think uh, 28 times in the one paper I did a search over it and, and it found 28 instances of important everything was important the study was important and the methods important and our findings are important and importantly, this is important, and so it was doing my head in. Um, if you do use those words, try and find them and remove them all. Um, don't have anything that is uh, in there that is important. It's really usually a word that should be replaced with um, something else, with a more with a more fitting word. Uh, there's a difference between which and that. Um, Oxford comma. Uh, what's this one? This is about parentheses. Um, this is all just minor things, but um, it's useful to, to pay attention to, to some of these things. Um, a lot of this kind of stuff also appears in, um, in this book by William Zinzer, which is about uh, on writing well that I, um, that I recommend. So this is one of them. And this one used to be on Linda, but I think Linda was bought by LinkedIn. So it should be part of the LinkedIn 
um, courses, which is editing mastery, how to edit writing to perfection, which is also really useful when you're a supervisor, because the skill about editing is that you're actually not writing, um, but you're just helping someone else write. So it's much more about not making it your own, but being able to just um, refine it enough so that it's like a polishing, it's like a finessing that you want to apply. I'm going to stop here because I'm, uh, I've been talking a lot. And I'm just going to pause and see if there's, um, if there's questions. Thanks, Marcus. I think we, uh, we're going to uh, force everybody to ask one question to you. Uh, so we're going to go around uh, because everybody here like are coming for learning something. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to go one by one on the list and I will, I will start with Amit. Hey, <laughs> um, hi Marcus. Um, anyway, I had one uh, question. So yeah, uh, okay. So uh, I just going through the new Kai publication format and it shows that the uh, page length limit has been uh, uh, removed. So essentially when you're writing a paper earlier, we knew that, okay, there is a page limit of 10 or 11. But now the format has been changed from double column to single column. Essentially, that increases the page length by two or three pages. And the new Kai publication format says that there is no page limit as such. So when you're writing a paper for Kai or any other conference following the Kai publication format, which is the um, uh, recent one, how to make sure or how to identify what should be the optimum page length for the paper, uh, given that the page length limit has been um, uh, removed. Yeah, um, I don't know too much about the um, the new single column um, template that was put in place more recently. Um, I, I do believe that it's supposed to just make um, the, uh, the initial submission easier and, and once the paper gets accepted and goes into production, there's another template that the, um, the publishing company that ACM uses would apply so eventually it still will be reformatted in the two column layout, but it's at a later stage. I mean, does anyone know Eunice, you might know on just the template part? Um, uh, no, uh, because the Kai website clearly states that both papers will use the same publication format. So I, I mean, my understanding is that even for publication, they'll use the single column. I mean, that's how I interpret it. Oh, right. as well. Okay. okay. I was, yeah, I, I did look at it the, the other day for another conference and I thought I saw that, um, that the actual proceedings lighted on the track once the papers get all assembled, that they might go back into two columns. But anyway, your question was about the length. Now, yeah. um, I, would, I would suggest that um, whilst the requirement might have been removed, um a lot of the community still got in their minds from you know years and years and years of reviewing for hci and especially for the Kai conference they it's kind of like a bit of a, a yardstick of what they've seen in the past the papers that are out there right now and the length of those papers right so imagine that your paper all of a sudden is um not the usual 10 pages and references but because there's no limit, your paper is 20 pages. Now, what kind of impression would give to someone that has sent that paper for peer review? Okay. 
Like, no, I mean, like if you were send a paper um, and, you know, because there's no more requirement with Carl, the paper that you have to review is 20 pages. Well, I guess I can comment a little bit about that. Um, there has been a lot of changes uh, on the uh, on the template for the CHI 2021. And there are still like a discussing. So it has not been the final uh, thing that um, uh, people put on this one yet. But uh, I'm sure that there will be more information uh, put on the website about the template. Yeah, I, I'm going to ask more uh, details if you are interested. Uh, but I guess uh, like uh, uh, responding to what Marcus said before, like um, if you are a reviewer and you already see that you your um, your writer send like a 40 pages, then kind of like a, as a reviewer, you're gonna lose interest of reading the papers. I think that would be like a, my my uh, impression as um, as a reviewer. Yeah, I think the um, the hurdles for acceptance are much higher the longer the paper gets. Um, so if you are submitting a paper that's 20 words, um, first of all, I'm going to be annoyed. Um, I just had this experience last week, not with a um, HCI paper, but our university has PhD milestone submissions. So our PhD students have to submit documents at certain stage of their candidature. Okay. And so this is a person that was doing their um, 12 month milestone. So what they have to submit to the university after um, the first year. And the university asked for 30 pages and they submitted 90 pages. Now, fair enough if Kai now says there's no limit, but I just looked at it and says, you know, there goes my, my not just my afternoon, but my whole evening. And I can't watch my favorite show on television because someone can't um, keep it short and simple and has to be all verbose and, and talk and talk and talk. And so I would definitely not recommend going beyond 10 pages. It would be very unusable. Um, I would not use up this option. The fact that they've removed the page limit, I think is rubbish. Um, what they should have been doing is actually reduce it even further and make people uh, say the same thing in, in less words. If we you know, compare ourselves with people in, in chemistry, you can have um, a chemistry paper on three or four pages. Um, so I think a lot of the paid, uh, papers that I read um, they are just too waffly and too verbose. They could all be much shorter. So my rule of thumb is um, if you are in doubt between adding more or less, go for less. Because there's so much burden on the peer review system. There's more and more papers. Now with the whole COVID-19 situation, we're all sitting in front of the computer from 6 a.m. to midnight and everyone's just writing papers. Like I'm getting all these review requests, all these students, um, usually they would submit, you know, two papers in their candidature. Now they submit two papers every month. It's just completely crazy right now. So we have far too many papers. No one needs them. Um, and the less you write um, and the more quality you put in, the better. Yes, and Janet says, make the reviewer smile. Um, that's a good point. I do like to read papers that, you know, really excite me that I, uh, I get interested in. So um, that's, that's a good point. So use images, um, do research into related fields and bring new knowledge into HCI. I like that. 
um, if someone put uh, uh, did the effort of actually um, you know um, doing the hard work of reading into other disciplines, other fields, pictures, diagrams, yes, that's all good advice there yeah. as well. Yeah, I guess like uh, the challenge is like uh, how to make it short. I mean, like uh, to make it longer is easier because you can talk nonsense. Uh, but to make it short is like uh, the hardest because you, I think in my in my experience, like uh, you really have to choose what words you want to put it. Like especially uh, my experience is like when you do, you, you when you write abstract because you are usually like a limited with 200 or 300 words. So that's um, the good lesson. Well, I'm going to go to Aussie. Do you have one question for Marcus? Yeah, hi Marcus. Uh, is my mic uh, working correctly now? Yeah, yeah I can hear oh, you. Okay. Uh, previously, I used the Bluetooth microphone, so that's the problem came from. Uh, Marcus, uh, you said about uh, publishing in other fields uh, that might uh, unfamiliar with human-computer interaction. And this is very relevant to me because the subject of the research is also uh, has connection with psychology. Uh, do you have any uh, suggestion if we want to publish it in the to the psychologist community? Uh, how should we introduce the human computer interaction concept in our papers? Um so i'm i'm a big fan of of branching out and um, publishing widely not just in hci now when you do this um it does help if you have a co-author from that area that uh, someone who's familiar with the publication um, outlets with the publishing conventions with the norms and with the publication culture um and the language and so forth so similarly how a lot of the things we've been talking about is HCI specific and we are geared towards publishing in HCI venues. There's people that publish only in medical journals or they're published in psychology journals and so forth. So it's good if you have someone that you can pair up with and someone who knows about these conventions and they can become co-author and they help you um, use the right language. Like for instance, I'm a big fan in the design community um to use active voice active language so you use you know i did this we did that um whereas in science and in health for instance it's the opposite a lot of the time they're trying to remove themselves in this very artificial positivist sense and they've never touched the patient right so the subjects randomized control trials um and it's not that the one is is wrong or the other one is is right it's more different cultures different conventions so I think uh, one recommendation is to pair up with another co-author from that field that knows what they're doing. Um, and another one is about being really clear about what is it that would be novel in that community, okay? So for instance, uh, uh, years ago, I read a Kai paper um, and they were, they were sending it to Kai and the study really was about whether on Twitter, when you have a Twitter account, do you get more followers when you um, tweet on topic or when you tweet on a variety of different topics? So, for instance, if my Twitter account is only about smart cities, 
am I more likely to get uh, followers if I only talk about that topic or if I have a variety? So I also talk about, you know, um, cheesecake recipes and my my dog and um, about politics. Now, I was suggesting that that paper, whilst there was nothing wrong with it per se, is not really a good fit for HCI. That's a media communication studies paper. And it would get a much better reception and a much better citation count and, um, and uh, take up if it was sent to a communication studies journal. Like people in social media, they have their own outlets. There's um, three dozen or so different um, journal outlets and conferences for that type of work. But because they wanted to come to Kai, it had to be submitted to Kai. I think that was a complete mismatch. So I think um, being really clear of what um, your contribution is, sometimes something that is novel um, to, um, um, to us, um, well, the other way around, something that is um, very trivial to us in HCI that's already been done to death, could be really novel and interesting to another community, another discipline, for instance. Um, I recall um, a couple of years ago, I saw this this really funny paper, and I had to laugh, and I still pay them out about it. It's called the um, uh, the app walkthrough method, and it's done by some of my colleagues, and and they know that I um, that I pay them out on this. So they published a HCI method that they call the app walkthrough method, which is where you take your phone and you install a new app, and then there's certain steps that you go through to, to kind of go through the interface, right? So it's like HCI 101. It's like the most simplest thing that we would um, teach our undergrad students. And it's like this sensational paper in the um, communication community. So they publish this as a paper. It gets all these citations. They think it's like bees knees. Um, this this idea of the app walkthrough method, and I just think it's completely ridiculous. It's you know just the result of the fact that no one in communication has ever heard of HCI, and so there was someone that thought, oh, let's introduce a um, undergrad uh, lecture uh, HCI 101 as a Q1 journal article to the communication community, and it took off. Um, yeah, does he answer your question? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Okay, good. Well, Marcus, thank you very much. And um, yeah, and then the next one, we are going to also talk about uh, navigating Kai review process. Uh, it will be with uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Geraldine Fitzpatrick. And uh, she will be talking about the process. Uh, she was the uh, Kai, 20, uh, Kai uh, 2019 uh, chair. And uh, she'll be talking about rebuttal, revise, reject, and then resign. What does he mean by that? So it's a very interesting uh, topic. And uh, I hope you would be uh, interested to join our uh, next event for this um, uh, mini virtual uh, workshop uh, with the SEM chapter. So yeah, I hope I will see you uh, again, like um, next week or the week after. And uh, Marcus, thank you so much for staying late and sharing with us a lot of uh, valuable information. And it's no great. No worries, you're welcome. 
Well, thank you everyone for coming and uh, I hope you have a really nice weekend and uh, stay safe and uh, see you next week or the week after next week. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. Thank you, Monica. Thanks all.